Hello, my name is Joshua Salos Carter, a student fellow at the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies, and I'm very happy to be presenting this podcast in the Digital Peace Project series with a very special guest to help us break down and understand the experience of online hate and violence directed at members of the 2S LGBTQIA community. However, before we begin, I would like to take a moment to acknowledge that this podcast is currently being recorded at MIGS, which is located on stolen Ganyangehaga territory. Jojage, otherwise known as Montreal, has historically served as a gathering place for many First Nations. Stephanie, I'm so grateful to be sharing this space with you today. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the Diggs Lab. Hi, I'm Stephanie Duguay. I'm a, an assistant professor in communication studies, and I'm a Concordia University research chair in digital intimacy, gender, and sexuality. So here at Concordia, I run a lab called the Digital Intimacy, Gender, and Sexuality Lab, or the Diggs Lab. Um, and we have a sort of broad research program that has four different aspects. One is to look at digital research methods because digital technologies like social media platforms and apps are always changing. Another one is a focus on how technology is shaping our relationships. This includes looking at dating websites and apps and how that sort of technology is changing who we meet and when we meet people. Another element is looking at algorithms, artificial intelligence, and the datafication of our intimate lives um, and how this sort of uh, extracting data from people and also incorporating it into our technologies, how that shapes people uh, and their relationships. Um, and then finally, we're also looking at how digital media and technologies shape the way that people represent their sexual identity and their gender. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to dig a little bit more into each of those aspects. But uh, first, I'm curious, is there any kind of central through line that guides your research as it relates to platforms and digital spaces? Yes. So identity is um, kind of the through line um, that I have taken throughout my research. And it's one of the topics that got me started in this area of looking at social media and apps and uh, digital technologies more broadly. As I was starting in my master's degree, interviewing people about coming out on Facebook for my PhD research, I expanded that to look specifically at how queer women manage their identity across Instagram, um, Vine, which uh, is a short video platform that no longer exists, but it was a lot like um, uh, TikTok is today. Uh, and then also on Tinder. And then some of my more recent research has also focused on social media. And so in in this research that I've been doing, what I've seen is that people tend to adjust three different factors. One is their level of personal identifiability. So you can decide whether you want to be anonymous on certain platforms, if they allow that. Other platforms, you know, there's this imperative to use your real name <laughs> as defined by them. Um, or And you can decide, you know, do I want to have a photo with my face in it? Do I want to have um, uh, maybe an avatar instead or a different image that I feel represents me. And so all these factors kind of um, uh, contribute to how identifiable we are on a platform in terms of whether people can, uh, you know, see that it's us and connect that to the ways that we represent ourselves in other parts of our lives. Another factor is reach. 
So how far does what we put out there go? <laughs> and, you know, am I able to send a message and maybe I'm on a, a WhatsApp group or a Facebook group and that's only going to my immediate friends? Then I might be a lot more intimate in what I put in that message. If I'm tweeting and I'm broadcasting that across many, many different audiences, many that I can only imagine, um, then that's a very far reach. Maybe I'm going to put something a little less intimate in that message. Maybe not, depending on, you know, uh, what the factors are there and how I want to represent myself. And then the third element is one of salience. Um, it's how recognizable is the information that we're putting in these messages to other people. Um, and so when we're talking specifically about sexual identity, there are signals that people have been using for a long time, and these all also evolve and change. In my writing, I've kind of written about this as identity modulation, the ability to adjust or modulate your self-representations through these three factors. Um, and then also it's dependent on how much a platform will let you do so. A couple of years before that, myself um, deciding how to come out, and I decided to subtly put it on Facebook and then realized that there were many more people on my Facebook that I was connected with uh, than I anticipated. And so even though I didn't experience a range of um, uh, reactions, it was actually like pretty anticlimactic for me. It got me thinking about the many different audiences that we do have on social media. And so when we're thinking about the construction of identity on social media, there's the factor of, okay, how do I actually use this technology to rep represent myself in a way that I feel is accurate, that reflects how I want to feel and think about myself? Um, and then also who's receiving that? Uh, what audiences? On a lot of our social media platforms, we have friends, family, coworkers. <laughs> this can lead to a phenomenon that scholars call context collapse where we would generally keep certain representations of ourselves separate across those audiences, social media platforms actually collapse these audiences for us. Um, so managing our self-representations across those audiences can be a lot of work. People develop strategies, especially for LGBTQ plus people. Um, sometimes the stakes can be high. If you have coworkers or family members that are homophobic, then um, you know there could be repercussions uh, for them knowing those things about you. And so uh, people actually develop very good strategies <laughs> of separating these audiences again. Um, but on the other hand, platforms, what they want to do a lot of the time is connect us. The more connections we have, the more likely we are to be on the platforms, to be um, giving our data. And so these platforms are designed in a certain way to connect us across these audiences. And so sometimes that can work against the way that people try to reinstate their privacy and try to represent themselves to certain people. But there's signals that let other people kind of know things about our identity, especially if you also identify similarly, right? So, you know, maybe I'll post something and make a reference to a queer celebrity, or maybe there's a certain type of fashion that is very popular among people who identify as lesbian or gay, um, and that's in my photos. Some people might pick up on that. Other people who are outside of those cultures might not. And so there's the question of how salient, how salient is this identity indicator to other people. And so those are some of the ways that people manage their um, representation of their identity. 
That's all really interesting, particularly how you define context collapse and this sort of idea about identity modulation that almost sounds like a workaround for queer people navigating platforms and other online spaces. I'm really interested in what that looks like from the perspective of a content creator. Could you talk more about how this type of landscape can create hurdles for queer content creators and what kind of solutions are out there? Yeah, well, for them, you know, the studies, there's so many people kind of working in the content creation space. Uh, fewer of them, fewer scholars are focused specifically on queer content creators, um, but that's kind of where we're aiming to investigate more. Um, but the landscape is always changing for them. These platforms, they update very rapidly. They change their features, but they also change their business models. If you're someone who's putting a lot of work into your content creation and wanting to you know, have it help sustain you economically somewhat, some of these platforms do have creator programs or other sort of incentive programs, but these also constantly change. And so there, it's really difficult to know how much compensation you might get or you know, if you'll get any at all. And there's not really a standard here. So it can be quite difficult to be a content creator and know how to go about getting your content out there and then to also be able to just sustain yourself <laughs> in order to do so. Um, and we know that platforms have their own governance policies that they publish, but then the way that these policies are translated into content moderation and um, like we've been talking about the curation of algorithmic feeds, those aspects can be more opaque to content creators. And so you could be putting out so much content and feeling like you're really starting trying to resonate with your audiences, but you might feel like the algorithm is against you, that you're being banned or shadow banned or demoted in some way. And um, you know, one of the students in the lab, Alex Chartrand, is a doctoral student candidate, and he's looking at this, looking at this sort of feeling that, hey, I don't think my content's going anywhere. But it's very hard for content creators to verify whether that's actually happening. <laughs> they have to ask their audiences, hey, can you see this? If you engage with this, will you see more of my posts? And sort of test out these hypotheses. Um, and so this sort of lack of transparency of what's happening behind the scenes on the platform creates um, difficulties for creators. From what I know and what I've looked at in terms of the popular platforms, their public-facing guidelines are not you know, targeting vulnerable minorities. <laughs> they, don't, they, they wouldn't, you know, they don't do that. However, in sort of creating broad guidelines of what's allowed on the platform or what's not allowed on the platform, sometimes I think what's not taken into account is that some populations are more, um, more often the target of certain groups than others, right? And so in some of the interviews with content creators that I've done in the past, what's come up is that, okay, there's the guidelines, and then there's the fact that moderation on some of these platforms functions according to whether or not content gets reported. And so someone will put up um, a post, you know, maybe a, a queer content creator will put up a post and people who are homophobic or discriminatory will flag it. And if something gets flagged again and again, even if it doesn't violate the guidelines, it may still get removed. And in these ways, it's kind of like the, the moderation processes 
and the groups that may be discriminating against minorities work together to reduce the visibility of queer people on the platforms. We, we know from past instances that algorithmic moderation is uh, not perfect yet. Um, a lot of the time it is actually overly sensitive when it comes to uh, images of bodies. Um, when Tumblr uh, decided to instigate a ban on sexual content, it ramped up its algorithmic moderation and there were a lot of false positives. So a lot of content that did not include nudity was removed um, from the platform. And then it becomes a very large hassle for people to try to get their content back. Um, and so, yeah, I think platforms are in a tricky space because they are moderating at scale. There's so much content posted every minute of the day. And so we can expect them to use some sort of automated moderation. Um, but there need to be checks and balances, especially for instances that it's not clear that this is a violation of their policies. And we need them to be continuously double checking and revisiting their policies to see, OK, does this protect everybody? Um, is this, uh, you know, in alignment with human rights, for example? Um, and so uh, we need them to be looking at the processes and then also the guidelines that the processes are based on. There's a few different ways that, um, that I think discrimination shows up. So one is in the design of the technologies. Uh, sometimes platforms are designed in a way that just doesn't account for diversity doesn't think about the range of people using them. Um, so if you think about, uh, there, for example, there are dating apps that the gender options are still male or female. That's a very binary concept of gender that doesn't work for a range of people. Um, and in not designing for those people, that can be a form of discrimination, right? And then, yeah, as we've been talking about the sort of moderation processes um, and the way that content is, uh, can be censored on platforms, that can be another form of uh, discrimination, but it's a complicated one, right? <laughs> Again, it, is it in the design of the moderation algorithm? Is it in uh, how moderators are trained and whether they're um, completely not clued into what certain expressions of identity look like? Are they um, underpaid click workers functioning in a context where they wouldn't necessarily be able to understand you know, queer content from elsewhere. Um, and so that sort of discrimination, discrimination is really complicated. And then of course there's people discriminating against other people on these platforms. And sometimes you end up with a platform that has uh, such a mass or a population of people that um, perpetuate misogynist um, or homophobic views that it creates a hostile environment for queer people to function in. Um, and so uh, that can lead to the deplatforming of queer people. That can lead to people actually just wanting to leave that space. Um, and this can be a problem, right? So again, this is very complicated as to what can be done. Um, the, the only thing that is completely clear is that something does need to be done. There's a lot of hate speech circulating um, online and there's a lot of discrimination that happens and um, that does push people out of that public sphere, that does take away their ability to express themselves through digital media, through social media, which is one of the main ways that people do express themselves these days and connect with other people and build their lives. Um, so we can't 
do nothing, <laughs> which is really important. Um, as to what we do, it needs to happen at multiple levels. We need governments to be tuned in, to be really understanding these technologies and what's happening, because a lot of the time technological innovation races ahead and governments and laws are these sort of slower moving machines. And so we can't have that happening necessarily. Lawmakers, policymakers, they need to be well informed. We need platforms to be accountable. Governments need to hold them accountable and users of the platforms need to hold platforms accountable. And so um, we're seeing somewhat more of this where people are, are speaking out and saying, hey, we're not going to stand by while you make a lot of money off of this circulation of hate speech, right? This shouldn't be happening. You need to actually, um, you know, be, uh, be responsible for what's happening on your platform. Uh, a lot of the time, the, the language that platforms use when they talk about moderation or they talk about problems is they construct themselves as neutral actors, as just conduits for content. And we know this is not the case because they're making so many different decisions about what content is allowed and how it circulates. Um, so we need change at the platform level. I also think that it's difficult to just wait on platforms to make these changes. We need to also look at what are the ways to equip people with data literacy to know, okay, I've clicked on this and then I've clicked on that and now here I am, how do I get myself out of this barrage of content that isn't necessarily serving me to fully understand an issue um, and might also be affecting to pe people uh, in terms of their well-being, right? And so what supports can we give people to um, kind of reconfigure their feeds as well? Right? And so we have to think about what are the solutions so that people's feeds are not necessarily littered with these extreme points of view that then take them down rabbit holes if they decide to keep on clicking. So in particular, we know that TikTok is one of the platforms that is very algorithmically driven in terms of what you see. You can search for content by a hashtag on the platform, but a lot of people interact with it by opening it, and there's a curated feed that responds to what you do on that platform. Um, and so this actually poses quite a few hurdles for research because you have to figure out how am I going to actually find the content that I'm interested in. And so we're tackling that methodological issue. And as we do so, our aim is to look at content that um, older TikTokers, and to be old on TikTok is just to be over the age of 30, really. Um, so people over 30 who are queer, we're looking at what are they putting in their TikToks? What kind of content are they making? And as we've seen sort of in certain instances, some people are making content that is aimed at, you know, uh, queer people who are between 20 and 30. So this sort of advice from your gay uncle or your lesbian aunt or your trans grandma, um, we're looking at these videos and looking at the potential for them to bridge this generational gap. Um, and so that's one of the way, one of the projects in which data and algorithms come together with people representing themselves in this intersection of sexual identity and age. One of the things that seems to have come up a couple of times is the double-edged nature of digital platforms. There are clear dangers involved in navigating these platforms as a queer user or content creator. But it sounds like there is a certain element of empowerment as well. Do you have any examples of the sort of 
positive potential of digital spaces to embrace or bring together and support members of the 2S LGBTQIA plus community. One tangible example uh, from some more recent research in the past couple of years is that uh, when the pandemic started, of course, well, everything locked down in Canada in 2020. If you remember spring 2020 in Canada, we were all in our houses and we were all, um, a lot of us were feeling very lonely, very separated from each other. And especially for queer people, um, it was difficult because the spaces where we tend to gather, such as, you know, clubs or groups, those were also shut down. And for some people, for some queer people, domestic spaces are not even necessarily welcoming spaces, right? So some people might have been locked down with family members um, that don't particularly understand them or aren't uh, welcoming to them. And so that was the, the climate, the space and the environment in spring 2020. And so even though places, physical spaces were locked down, we saw virtual um, uh, spaces of connection pop up. And so myself and research assistants in the Diggs lab, so Anne-Marie Trepanier, uh, as well as Alex Chartrand, uh, we started to investigate one of these particular uh, gathering spaces, which was the uh, virtual dance party Club Quarantine, Club Q. Um, and this was something that was started by some Toronto scenesters, um, and they decided to just sort of hold these dance parties over Zoom. <laughs> and we were interesting as uh, interested as scholars as to how do you turn Zoom, a business video conferencing software, into a party space. Um, so we started to look at the news coverage of these parties um, and the format of the parties themselves and started to write about how this sort of reuse of Zoom was creating a queer space of connection and a space where people felt that they could, um, you know, get through all of the intense things that were happening, right? So it became important for queer survival during that time. Since we're almost out of time, I'd like to give you a chance to make a quick plug. Are there any events or initiatives you are working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? At the Diggs Lab, we do have uh, some programming that is for scholars across universities. Uh, so I, uh, the lab is uh, comprised of students that I supervise, but then also we try to build a knowledge community around these um, topics and issues surrounding digital intimacy, gender, and sexuality. Um, and so if you're interested, we do have events and talks and workshops, and uh, folks can sign up for our newsletter on the website, which is just digslab.net. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Stephanie is an assistant professor in the Communication Studies Department at Concordia University and the research chair in digital intimacy, gender, and sexuality. This podcast is an installment of the Digital Peace Project, in partnership with the Department of Canadian Heritage. This podcast fait partie du projet pour la paix numérique en partenariat avec le ministère du Patrimoine canadien. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a rating or sharing with friends.